Sometimes I've waited patiently for you And you'll do just what you choose to do You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Brendan McCarthy. Uh, Brendan's latest book is The Dream Gang from Dark Horse, which will be out, I think it's middle of June? I forgot to July 27th. Oh, there we go, July. I guess that's uh, just after Comic-Con, for those that right. go to the madness. I shy away from it. As well, uh, you can find his work in a plethora of other things, including the big uh, Milligan and McCarthy tome. From Dark Horse as well, and uh, was the other one the solo book from DC, the issue twelve, and Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Fever, and really, there's I kind of didn't realize he had so much comic stuff because for a while, like my early understanding stuff, it was like this like weird nugget of oddities that would come across occasionally, and now it's like there's just there's quite a lot out there, and it's quite impressive and great to come across. Um, so thank you, Brendan, for joining me today. Okay. Um, now, 
there's a bunch of different thoughts reading your work, and I think one of the things I want to start with is really talk a little bit about your kind of early influences in comics, and I'm curious about two specifically, because you touch on them a bunch in your work, I see, is uh, kind of how Ditko and Kirby uh, especially kind of influenced you and kind of shaped you in a way. Right. Or is that me presumptively speaking? Not at all, no. I mean, uh, if you're... Um, I, I was a kid in the 60s, so I grew up actually re- going into shops and buying off spinner rack, Ditko, Spider-Man, Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four, all that stuff. So I was fortunate enough to have been reading American comics in, in one of its greatest eras. And I think the difference in the Kirby Ditko stuff compared to the stuff that's happening now was the imaginative quality. There was there was a strong level of uh, conceptual and visual imagination in their work. Uh, the movement after the 80s was to more sort of street gritty stuff, mm-hmm. um, but the 60s was very untrammeled in its imagination, and that was a big influence. That once you, as a kid, you know, comics when you read them, are a much more of a vivid experience. Um, they were back then, so you didn't have computer games uh, and CGI and stuff like that. So comics were the most far-out popular medium you, medium you could come across. So once you've been to Ditko's dimension, once you've traveled through the negative <laughs> zone, you know, everything, you know, it's taken film about, what, 50 years to catch up? Mm-hmm. So they still can't do it properly. Um, and I kind of feel like Ditko's negative zones kind of seep through you throughout a lot of your work. Um, just kind of that underlying, like, your, the work kind of takes place in a place that doesn't have to follow any kind of natural laws of physics in a way. Yeah, well, um, I, 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 my first exposure to rampant surrealism was actually Ditko and Kirby. Um, you know, although Kirby was more science-based, there was more order to Kirby. Ditko was the more, probably the furthest out mind space you could go to visually at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Yellow Submarine film also had that quality to it. Um, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey at the time was also that, but also the music in the air at the time was also very far out. You know, Pink Floyd and in, in their good period and you know, the sort of psychedelic Beatles and all that stuff. So that stuff was quite, you know, one was exposed to an imaginative abstraction quite early on, and it was in the culture. Culture's locked down a lot more now, I think, and um, you don't really get that kind of, that spaciousness. No, um, glam music as well was kind of an important influence for you at a certain point. It was, yeah. That was the next one after... um, so I'm really, I'm a kid, I'm, so around the prime, you know, 65, 66, 67, 68, around that time, I'm about 9, 10 years old. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, that's, so that stuff's really hitting me big, you know, Yellow Submarine, um, as I said, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Kirby, Fantastic Four, Ditko, Doctor Strange. That stuff's making a big influence on me. Then my sort of, uh, you know, my interest sort of waned a bit, uh, I think, really, at the end of the 60s. And um, the next thing that, that made an impact me was David Bowie, the early Roxy music records of Brian Eno, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Mark Boland, Electric Warrior. That kind of era 
suggested a new kind of uh, uh, some a different sort of slight different probably less imaginative in in its spaciousness but um it was more glittery so there's a kind of glitter quality that i drop into my work as well uh, i try and um like with uh, some with my co- comics these days particularly with photoshop and stuff when i do special effects i i sort of hark back to something like the original classic star trek mm-hmm. where the special effects had a certain style to them um and they had a lot of kind of uh, stars spank you know sparkling stars and all that sort of stuff would often be seen you know in bewitched or in um you know beam me up scotty you get that kind of special effect look so that's what i imported into the comics when i would drop that stuff in in photoshop it's kind of so, the, the sparkly but also like kind of a flatness in a way as well that would probably be the other submarine influence you know um but i, I was trying to just um you know get away from just the usual you know that there's a kind of default cgi style which i don't find very interesting mm-hmm. um the over rendered too much going on oh uh, yeah i can't even technology to me well also the, what you're talking about there that over detailed comic book stuff that you see in a lot of um marvel and dc stuff i find hard to look at because in a way, I, I believe it or not, I'm actually, you know, what I'd love to do is refine my style to the point of um, um, Joe Kubert or something like that, or Hugo Pratt. You know, some that I think is masterful. Uh, the over-detailed, every line hatched and delineated. It, that's a, there's a sort of slightly, um, it's an immature style, really. I mean, I had that when I was younger as well. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to prove I can draw. That kind of thing. But, Do you kind uh, of see it as a crutch in a way? Um, I think it's well, it's overcompensation psychologically by putting in too much detail. It's a, and it's a trait of younger artists. The more energy to put into it, and less concern. Well, on the... I, I think it's also as you become more sophisticated, as you get more educated into visual arts, and become more influenced by different things. Over detailing work becomes, which is I feel is a kind of way of look how well I can draw, drawing attention to yourself stuff, and I think it's an immature approach. As that falls away gradually, I think one simplifies. I mean, you look at you know I can often spot it in artists as they mature and develop. You look at um, Mike Mignola, for example, beautiful progression towards a very elegant simplicity. When you started going to art school, did you specifically want to look at doing uh, comics work? Uh, no, initially I uh, went to art school to study painting. Well, in fact, I did go and do a fine arts degree in painting, and the secondary uh, subject was film. I was always interested in narrative painting, although I did experiment with abstraction and stuff, and actually <clears throat> started to, after having dropped comics for about sort of, you know, best part of a decade when I when I got into my uh, middle teen by the time I got to art college I could kind of start to see comics again from a distance from some time away from them and I started to incorporate comic imagery into my paintings uh, but not in a Roy Lichtenstein uh, style uh, which bored I, I, I really disliked Lichtenstein um, so but the ideas of people like Andy Warhol and Marcel Duchamp which were conceptual ideas that's what really kind of uh, started to excite me and get got me to look at relook at narrative in comics 
Um, and uh, after I left college, in order, you know, I spent a year or so as a starving artist, trying to, you know, literally eating cans of baked beans and trying to sell a painting, and nobody was interested. So I just sort of wandered into drawing comics just to make some money, and gradually bringing a desire that knowing that comics could be a completely different thing to what they were. This is pre-Watchmen and pre-all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was part of that first wave of British artists who came up, uh, or creators, should I say, who, um, you know, along with Alan Moore, Brian Talbot, and, um, say, uh, you know, the beginning of the, that whole movement. I was reading one thing, and maybe it was in Dream Gang, and you went full Kirby collage, which I yes. loved. Yeah, I, I, I mean, those, I mean, imagine you're set sort of seven years old, eight years old, you've been reading the Fantastic Four, and then you start hitting all those amazing, um, you know, I'm at the junction of everywhere, or that amazing Kirby collage was. Yeah. The Fantastic Four. I mean, those Kirby collages and the Ditko dimensional stuff, uh, that's kind of really um, uh, stuff that, at the time, was the furthest out you could go. I mean, the Steranko stuff was also there as well, you know, when he did the four-page spread and things like that. Um, so in a way, Dream Gang's a bit of a, a bit of a love song to, to that era. Well, yeah, um, because I was writing and drawing it, I could do exactly what I wanted. I mean, I wanted to tell a story, so I mean, that, the constraints of the character and the world. But, um, I mean, one of the things about Dream Gang is that I put a lot of attention into is world building. You know, you have to have rules and you have to explain them um, without being too expository. It is in places, you know, but um, uh, just to sort of set up rules and, and how the, the dream worlds are going to work in this particular story. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other big influences for me I see in that book is uh, just this uh, little Nemo. And I don't want to say that to be like, it's a dream comic, so there's little Nemo, but just um, that kind of um, otherworldliness. Yeah, but he's actually in his pajamas. So, <laughs> I mean, of course, it was a reference to Little Nemo. Yeah. Um, what is it about dreams that are important to you in your work? Because there's other stuff that it reverberates through as well. I think in Solo there are some dream stuff. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, all of Solo is. Um, uh, it's structured. What, what interested me was the idea of um, uh, take your anti-pretentiousness pills right now because I'm going to say meta-narrative. But um, I, with with the solo, what looks like a bunch of disparate strips that are not related to each other, by the time you get to the end of solo, you realize there's actually been an underground story going on all through the strips. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh so, with Dream Gang, I, I've had the story for literally about 35 years. I've had the idea for it. It's evolved. I mean, I once pitched it to Vertigo about 20 years ago when the, you know, Grant was doing Doom Patrol and all that stuff was happening. And they wanted to do it, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite get the deal with them that I wanted. So, I passed on it. And then uh, Inception came out, and I had to completely rewrite the entire thing because it was close to Inception. Um, that uh, I pushed uh, it more towards Yellow Submarine and Ditko and made it much more uh, 
comic books. So, it, uh, for example, one of the things that I, I mourn is the loss of the thought balloon as seen as a kind of archaic and unsophisticated graphic device. Mm-hmm. So people now think in terms of panels rather than thought balloons. The thought balloon has been expunged out of comic grammar, basically. So I just thought, as a visual artist, I can reclaim the thought balloon as a perfect way of creating a graphic device that contains visual information inside it, because obviously a thought balloon doesn't necessarily only have to contain text. It should also be able to contain visuals, as we think visually as well. Mm-hmm. So um, that was uh, a big thing for uh, Dream Gang for me, was to be able to use, to dig, dig up the thought balloon again and put it to good use and hopefully reclaim it more for the artist side of comics now rather than the um, writer's side of it. Now, I just want to touch a bit on the movie thing. Um, I don't want to get super into film. You, like, you, you've done a lot in film. One of the things I'm really interested in that I've seen you talk about and want to kind of dig into a little bit is understanding that difference between film and comics in the way that comics shouldn't be a representation of film. That's probably the prime reason why I don't read many comics anymore. Is because when you actually work in films and do storyboards and conceptual art, etc., when you open up a comic and you know you're reading somebody's film pitch, um, what you're looking at usually are um, a load of film cliches because the people doing the film pitch aren't that sophisticated in their film uh, techniques. So they tend to be doing you know, stuff that hasn't really gone past the Watchmen or something. You know? yeah. uh, so I actually find that boring. And also, once they're... Once you've got somebody doing a film pitch comic, which say pretty much, I'd say 60 to 70% of what's coming out in comics now are basically pitches for TV shows or films in comic form. Um, You're dealing, you know, you know that within sort of six pages, I can almost predict the story and what's going to happen, you know, what's being set up and stuff. Because the level of sophistication of the comic writer when it comes to film stuff isn't that great? And you can spot it a mile off if you've read about 10 billion film scripts, as I have, as part of my job. You know? yeah. So the thing about Dream Game is, is that I think well, if somebody does want to make a film of this or a TV show, and that would be nice, let them adapt it from an interesting piece that doesn't actually have to replicate film uh, moments and cuts and all the rest of it. Now, as film narrative, you know, the narrative that we see on TV and film, has become, if you like, the default narrative in society generally. We no longer really take our narrative structures from uh, literature. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fair enough. I think, you know, we generally, we're obviously going to use film and television cuts and things like that as our natural, as a naturally absorbed method of storytelling. But when you see it done so so many of the, uh, you know, image comics and all these things now, it's like, What's the latest film pitch I'm reading? Oh, it's this this one or that one, you know? Uh, so I've actually become quite turned off by that, and uh, that's why I probably stopped reading so many comics these days, is I'm looking for the idiosyncratic uniqueness of comics as a medium to mm-hmm. express storytelling and forms and shapes of storytelling. Um, as I say, and if, some, if, some, if a producer really want, loves the sort of uh, idea, say, in Dream Game, then they can adapt it into a film because Dream Gang is doing things as a comic that you wouldn't do in a film. You know, there's certain story 
things that happen that aren't really Hollywood film story things. You know, you can't do that to a character or this can't happen. So um, I feel that adapting um, uh, existing works into film is very valid. When it's just a transposition of a comic into a film, like we saw, say, with Watchmen, then it kind of doesn't work. No, it's stale. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm finding, though, is the default position of comics, which are, as I say, particularly the film pitch comic, if you get what I mean by that. Oh, um, no, I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, like, I personally stay very far away from most of the mainstream stuff. Like, it's some stuff I'll read in passing, but it's just very little of it is readable frankly well, yeah I mean it bores me is what it is maybe it's because I spend a lot of time working on films the last thing I want to do is when I go to comics is replicate films in a medium that doesn't move doesn't have sound and is not digitally projected mm-hmm. you know it's, it's a completely different medium you turn pages and you replicate the passing of time through graphic devices which is a completely different thing to films yeah, I don't have any sound the only sound I can manufacture is the sound in your mind and I find that interesting when you actually sit down and analyze where comics are happening comics are happening the fusion of the um, word balloon the sound effect and the image in sequence is ha- is actually mixed together in your mind rather than in a film where it's given to you and you receive it passively so do you find for yourself when approaching um, film or comics that you have different ways of approaching that, like artistically, professionally. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, when I was doing, say, Mad Max Fury Road is the sort of mo- my most well-known movie, where, where, and also in that one, I because I co-wrote it and designed all the conceptual stuff. You know, before anybody else came onto the movie, I sat in a room with George Miller for a couple of years, and we worked the whole thing out, wrote the whole thing, and then started storyboarding it with a couple of other guys. Uh, came on later um, that was you know then we were actually um, writing for movement sound and and that and cinematic dynamics um, when I was doing say um, dream game I'm doing a graphic novel it's going to be a hundred pages and I'm going to tell a story um, I don't want it to conform necessarily to film beats yeah. You know, some, in some places it does, because that's the best way to tell the story. But in other areas, you know, I do things without revealing the story if it's in the hope that somebody's going to buy the graphic novel. Um, uh, you know, I'm doing things that um, I know a film producer will say, hey, you can't do that. That character can't do that. You know. Yeah. I just want, that's exactly what I find tedious about, is that people have already made decisions about what characters can and can't do. Uh, if you like, it's self-censorship. Because, hey, people wouldn't do that in a movie. I want to make this easy for a film executive to read and say, hey, this could be a movie. You know, you can see, you know, you see the kind of low cunning in all this stuff all the time. Um, what's really interesting, last time I was in Hollywood, I was speaking to some agents, and they were saying that they can't even get executives to read comics anymore. <laughs> you know? You now have to give coverage of the comic to an agent, uh, to an executive, rather than actually just give them a graphic novel. You now have to clip out key frames from a comic with a three or four page coverage on it. You know, 
I mean, they're amazing, these guys. You know, they just don't want to do a damn thing. And they make a lot of money. Well, that's the trouble with, um, you know, I've been working in the film industry for about 20 years on and off. Not all the time, but... Yeah. Um, um, and so I've been, you know, seen the other side of it as well and learnt a lot. You know, I was very naive when I went into it. And, um, but really, I mean, you know, when, when you're dealing with the level of producers and agents, you know, you're there to provide the funding for the extension of their swoon pool as much as they're interested in your work, you know? Yeah. I, mean, I, I know that sounds horrible and everything, but that's the reality of it. Yeah. There, it, it, I mean, and that's one of the interesting things about the Mad Max is they're still able to get cobbled together really artistic Yeah, well, film. when you were... George, George Miller has the clout. Yeah. You know, the track record um, to actually... Uh, you know, he's a real artist inside, who works in the film industry. Somebody, I think, who... I've always rated him very highly in a way and always thought he was up, overlooked and undervalued. And um, thankfully Fury Road has now put him right to the forefront of great directors. And um, Fury Road in a way has elevated the original trilogy, which had kind of been forgotten as part of some kind of 80s franchise. But to me, the Mad Max franchise was, was really the last of the, those 80s franchises that hadn't been redone and fucked up, you know like Terminator, Alien, they, they just, mm -hmm. you know, debase the currency of the um, story. Um, Do you so, think part of it, though, is kind of the stain of Mel Gibson and just how his actions have affected his, his work? His back yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big, um, that was a big thing. That's why, you know, in, I suppose ultimately why he couldn't be Mad Max anymore was that... Uh, you know, he'd uh, sort of ruined his own... Um, I mean, he paid a big price, you know, for his uh, drunken diatribe. He, you know, destroyed his own career. Um, but, um, uh, but I think the power of Fury Road has, um, uh, uh, has now made people look back on the trilogy and realise that it's actually each of the films, I think particularly Thunderdome, not being the last word on Mad Max anymore, one can forgive it a bit more. <laughs> There's um, still some amazing parts to that. That's what I'm saying. Master now, Blaster. Of course. And the <laughs> Thunderdome itself and all the stuff about, um, you know, setting up a, a society where, um, you know, fighting, you know, we don't, we want to avoid mass wars. Therefore, people have to solve their disputes personally. So mm -hmm. that's interesting. You know, there's a lot of good subversive ideas in Thunderdome. The fact that they're all fighting over shit, I, I love, which is great, you know. <laughs> You know, that's the ultimate thing they're fighting over. I mean, the black humour in it, I love. And, uh, but because the sort of second half of the film was undermined by the children, the child tribe, which was treated as cute rather than, say, Lord of the Flies or something. Yeah. Should, um, that tended to undermine, um, you know, George's decision to try and make Mad Max a broader franchise. I mean, I talked to him a lot about this, you know, as to what worked, what didn't, why Road Warrior, and in a way, Fury Road, if you like, tonally, grew out of Road Warrior rather than, which I'm sure you, you, you I, I take it you've seen Fury Road. So. Oh, yeah. I yeah. saw it twice. Yeah, it's a great, great movie, it's a, and, and takes its place with Road Warrior and Alien and Blade Runner and Terminator 1 and 2 and, you know, all the classic sci-fi films. It's now 
one of them. It's an instant classic. Which uh, and also we talked about that. We can never make a cult movie again. We have to make a classic. Yeah. Because with the kind of budget you got, you can't do a cult movie. Cult movies tend to be found by an audience, and they tend to be midnight screeners and from the wrong side of the tracks culturally. You know, there's all that to them. Like the first two Mad Max films were very much like that. They were reviled in their day uh, by the kind of, uh, you know, cognoscenti of film. They were, like, people dismissed as video nasties. But what happened is that all the people who were blown away by Road Warrior gradually, when they got older, took over the institutions of culture. And um, a few, you know, about uh, six months ago, I was invited to the Sydney Opera House to with George Miller to discuss the writing of Mad Max Fury Road, which... 25, 30 years ago when Mad Max, the first one, came out, that would have not gone anywhere near the Sydney Opera House. That would have been considered uh, the most appalling cultural uh, garbage they could even think of. Mm-hmm. But times have changed, and all the people that were blown away by those films and understood them have now become people that run the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. Know, and the like. You know? So um, I, I, did, I, I spoke to George and was saying to him that I was disappointed that Fury Road didn't get the Oscar for Best Movie. I thought it was ludicrous that it didn't because um, Spotlight got the uh, Best Oscar, you know. And um, the thing about Spotlight is I think people have already forgotten it. And you think that with Fury Road, in 10 years' time, Fury Road will be midnight screenings with Fury Road, Road Warrior, Double Bills. And Spotlight, it's already forgotten, you know. It's It's a Hollywood feels good about itself movie. Of course it is. You Which know, is and, what they love to celebrate. Well, yes, it's in the tradition of, um, you know, all the president's men, fearless journalists taking on sort of some institutional corruption, whatever. But the idea of fearless journalists taking on institutional corruption in these days is as much a fantasy as, as uh, Mad Max Fury Road. In fact, probably a bigger one. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing with the recent Panama Papers is to see uh, certain institutions weren't part of the original um, share of the information. I don't know if you know anything about it. Um, yeah, I follow a lot of that stuff. I'm, I, I keep myself abreast of all that. But the Panama Papers have some fairly suspect origins, and it's quite interesting as to, you know, what's going on with those actual papers themselves. You know, the idea, you know, that they were on a website for a year while these investigative journalists sifted through them and all this stuff. Um, I'm not quite sure that I'm I think there's something suspect about those Panama papers, really. I think they may be what's known as limited hangout. And there may be some um, uh, intelligence uh, elements involved in it. You're talking like traditional disinformation? Um, I suspect there's an element of that going on. Because um, it tended to focus on certain countries, not most notably not America. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've come to be quite suspicious of, of what we call, you know, the media generally now. I, you know, just generally, you know, just if you have a, even the briefest sort of knowledge of most political events, what actually gets reported is to me kind of quite absurd. And I think, wow, this is amazing. You know, when you read The Times and all these other papers, you, you know, there's a lot of bias. You know, you've got to just accept institutional bias. Um. That kind of brings me to a topic that's been kind of in the back of my head, kind of leading into this, and right. I wasn't sure how to approach it, but I do want to talk about a couple of years ago, 
uh, there have been some Facebook posts and you've since kind of scrubbed your Facebook account. And that was part of it. And I want to kind of talk about it, not from like a um, argumentative sense, but just kind of talk about the situation where uh, you'd really taken some umbrage with uh, what you called like liberal or leftist. I can't remember the exact phrasing. Um, but do you know what I'm alluding to? Yeah, um, you've made a, a, a false connection here that I scrubbed in my Facebook account. I've uh, two months ago, I decided just to take a holiday from Facebook, and I'll go. And I said to, and I posted on my Facebook, "Hey, everybody, I'm going to come off Facebook for a few months. I've got a lot of other work to do, and I'll be back on to promote mm. Gang when it comes out." So there's no connection between the two okay. uh, uh, things. Um, the only problem with this uh, issue is that. Um, you may not be aware that a lot, uh, one of the major comic news outlets um, decided to do a story on me, which is basically a hatchet job. Um, Brendan McCarthy is a right-wing nut to be lumped in with Scott Orson Card, some guy, I don't know who he is, but somebody like that, and Frank Miller. Yeah. Um, the guy who wrote the article didn't know anything about my politics, and, um, uh, and basically, uh, when I passed it to my lawyer, he said, this is defamation, and we should... Um, you should uh, let the guy know that we, we, we're going to take this very seriously. So because of a defamation um, suit against this company, they took down the, the article, issued an apology, and scrubbed all the uh, stuff. Okay. And, um, as a result of that, I have to be very careful about what I say um, regarding not so much that site, because they, they just basically said, fine, we'll get rid of it, we apologize. Mm -hmm. When I pointed out inaccuracies in the original um, article by a guy on uh, some website who remains anonymous, of course, he has the luxury of anonymity, he writes under a pseudonym. Um, but um, so we basically um, keep an eye on what this guy says in case he defames me again. And um, the difference between a large comic book website who, can, who is suable and a, an anonymous kind of troll is that you can't do anything about it. So on the basis of don't feed the troll, and um, you have to understand th th that the guy who's behind all this, every time I do a piece of work, I have a movie out or whatever, this guy surfaces and directs traffic back to his original article and boasts about the increase in the traffic and all that kind of stuff. So it's not in my interests, and legally, I have been cautioned against commenting on it. So yeah. that's what I can say about it. Yeah, and, and like it's something I will be asked, why didn't I ask about this? And I, it's, I, and that's why I kind of want to be very open and kind of allow well, room to speak. And Well, it's quite, it, I'll just say that it was, a, it was one of the straight, it's probably the most bizarre experience of my life is to have a conversation that I thought was private with somebody who I've spoke to like a million times about all sorts of stuff. And we have big, political conversations as I do with other people you know I'm, I'm a huge I'm a living being in a western democracy and debate is part of it mm -hmm. and, um, uh, to have that taken out and pulled out and then um, added to with very strange um, you know where, where I'm kind of dressed up as this internet pantomime villain of the month kind of thing um, where you know Brenda McCarthy came out of the punk scene Punks use swastikas in their imagery. Therefore, McCarthy's a nut. Yeah. You, know, you get this kind of stuff. You then get Brendan McCarthy's dating an African-American woman while he's doing Fever 
He's using her as a beard to mask his racism. You know, and it just, like Chinese whispers, starts to escalate and escalate. You get another guy saying, Brandon McCarthy condones the shooting of black people. You know, and you're thinking, wow, this is just... So what do you do? Do you, do you, do you keep going after anonymous people on the internet? Because that's uh, going to keep you going for the rest of your life. That's... yeah, no. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that you have... You wouldn't know the stuff that's, you know, I, that somebody could actually accurately say, okay, discuss, t- talk about this. Yeah. Versus the stuff that then, you know, just got added to and added to and exaggerated and, you know, the li- you know, just flat out lying. And to the point where there were tweets, <laughs> I can't remember, if you can imagine, somebody was counting the number of white people in Fury Road to prove it was racist. I mean, it's... <laughs> I felt like a lot of these social justice warrior mentality is a bit like schizophrenics in that they keep counting stuff and looking at stuff and seeing it everywhere. And uh, you think, well, there's nothing you can really do about that mindset. Now, the weird thing is I know that mindset because I used to be in that mindset. And uh, when I was younger, I was a uh, pretty you know, far left politically. That's where I was coming from. But as I've got older and seen the world and lived, I'm starting to think, well, hang on a minute. There's a... There's a nasty sort of fascism coming out of the left these days, which is highly authoritative. Um, Authoritarian, I mean. Uh, Sorry, authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And that bothers me a lot. Um, And I feel that, the, in a way, the axis of left to right is really starting to move over to authoritarian to libertarian. And um, that's the sort of thing that interests me a lot, because, um, you know, I'm old enough to have been gone to school and actually been taught by people who fought in the Second World War. Um, and those people, one of their primary concerns was that, was that critical thinking should be taught to inoculate you against totalitarian thinking. Yeah. And um, I have um, a genuine interest in um, um, why, you know, you know, the issues of free speech versus hate speech, if you want to kind of call it like that, mm-hmm. if you I mean, these are actually complicated issues that, that if some screaming 20-year-old student is shouting at you, then you're not going to get a reasoned debate. So um, I'm sort of, um, you, know, you know, I don't have fixed points of view about lots of things, um, but uh, certain things seem to me the movement towards authoritarianism from the left, you know, which, and traditionally one always associates it with the right, is to me troubling. Because coming up through the counterculture and that whole world when I was younger, which was about, you know, I felt was, was a, uh, you, know, tr- you know, classic liberalism, if you like, rather mm-hmm. than um, uh, authoritarian leftism. I think the two things are different. And although we, we always see the right as the source of authoritarianism, you know, we call it fascism. You know, I was well aware when I was growing up, there was another system of fascism and authoritarian call, you know, from the left, which ended up, you know, is just as bad as uh, what happened in Germany, as, as what happened in Russia and China and all those places. So um, that's where I'm, I'm not, you know, we, I know with America it's so polarized at the moment, you, you have to be very careful about um, any, saying anything, and even now I'm probably saying too much and I'm going to get, you know, you know, sort of flayed alive by a bunch of people on Twitter, you know. But 
Well, the thing about podcasts is it's very hard to pull a quote. Um, oh, don't worry. Quotes can be pulled, sentences left off. It meanings 180 degrees reversed. That's all part of it, isn't it? It's, I mean, America, it's, it's, there's a lot of complexities right now, especially when you have situations where um, murder is celebrated. Like the, um, the fellow that killed Trayvon Martin basically makes a career off of selling weird patriotic pro-America art uh, right. based on his personality and he gets financial support from people for being yeah. this this monster like and and feeds into that and it's it's a really the future frightens me um well it, um that's true all that is true you know and uh, it is i mean i'm worried what worries me the most though is the is the decline in um reasoned debate over hysterical screaming, you know, which is, I think, a real problem. It means that the signal to noise now, it on the uh, social media, etc., is almost not worth bothering about. Um, and that and that's part of one of the things I was thinking about is how, when you go through this situation, um, like it's so there's this weird surrealness of anonymous onlineness um and the back and forth with that where it it's really like dystopian pkd type concepts coming into reality well um i'm i'm concerned about as i say my main the main issue and it's something that you know i i, I might like to do a piece on you know, an actual strip that looks into this whole thing of the rise. I mean, the last place I expected to see a rise in intolerance and authoritarianism was coming from the young left, who were always, to me, the great liberating force in society. And that's becoming something that I find quite disturbing. And I, and I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily agree. Um, I don't agree. Um, and I, and I think there are situations of, of flare-ups, but I don't necessarily see it as a homogenous whole. Um, and I also kind of understand the folk, where folks are coming from and what a lot of what folks are seeing is a real pushback on, um, on oppression and um, you know, generations of oppression. Now you're seeing a lot of folks saying, okay, we've had it, and uh, this shit's not cool anymore. Um, and that, that, that's a really big pushback that's happening, and a lot of folks are having a hard time processing that. Like, the status quo isn't kosher. Um, I kind of feel like we should loop back into comics. Seems pretty trivial, doesn't it, compared to uh, <laughs> piece of uh, life? It's... Uh, the, thing, the thing about... Also, what, what, why comics bore me so much is there's so little to do with what's happening. I mean, the conversation we've been having, I mean, I've got to be, because of the, um, it, uh, the Facebook and the kind of, you know, Brendan McCarthy is a nasty racist sort of stuff mm -hmm. that went on, I've got to be really careful of all that. And also, as I say, I'm under legal constraint 
um, not to comment because uh, you never know where this will go. Yeah. Um, and I don't uh, want to put you into position. No, I'm not going to let myself yeah. be put in a position. But um, uh, like that's not my interest as a as a as a host of a comics thing to ever put anyone into into any kind of jeopardizing things. I'm more interested in kind of organic conversations. Yeah. Well, um, given that. Um, uh, if you've probably never been in the position where you've had a sort of an online kind of orchestrated campaign against you, well, that's a very interesting phenomenon to see because you end up becoming a caricature, and you look at this person online and say, "God, that guy's an asshole," and you think, "Oh, hang on, that's me." Um, you know, so you're sort of thinking there's this difference in who this online pantomime villain becomes versus who you are as somebody with a wide variety of opinions. You've got one specific conversation taken out of context with mm-hmm. that has had I've had hundreds of conversations. And um, you know, you then have to deal with this very bizarre situation. You know, so um, um, look, put it this way, it hasn't done me any good. I don't want to um, uh, give any um, sucker to the guy, whoever he is, the anonymous person who wrote this essay, which I can assure you was full of inaccuracies and down lies. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I've got the best thing I can do, and the counsel I've had is just basically forget about it. It'll, it eventually will blow over, and um, and I have to now bear uh, bear bear a um, a stigma as a result of that. You know, and um, so be it. That's through a lack of understanding of social media, of not, of, of not understanding that it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not private, that anything can be taken out of context, that anything can be, um, uh, look at this, and isn't he this, and see, if you look at all these other things, it proves my point, you know, and you can, anybody, could, you know, I could probably do this, I could probably run a number on you if I wanted. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've pissed off Warren Ellis in the past, and he's posted about me, so we've all... <laughs> saying that look I'm not interested in all this stuff it's yeah. not you know in the end you know like um, you just get this absurd you know where even your personal relationships I happen to be in a relationship with an African American woman and that's even more evidence that I'm a crazy KKK lunatic you know, <laughs> you, know you just think what kind of world am I living in where these people know so much about my psychology they, they, they seem to know more about me than I do yeah, but um, look, it's a fantasy world, is what it is. Yeah, and um, you know, as I say, when you get to the point where people are counting the number of whites <laughs> extras in Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> which you have no part in, I'm presuming. Well, yeah, but you know, you just well, because at the same time, you know, the white privilege meme has now gone mainstream. Therefore, everybody's looking for that everywhere. You know, so. Um, you know, it's you just think, okay, just um, there's not there's the weird thing is you can't really do much about it. And if I go out there and start tweeting and defending myself, all I'm doing is just putting more petrol on the fire. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things to me about your work is it's not political. Like for the majority of your stuff, I was reading, it's surreal, okay. it's ideas, but I don't feel like there's a political narrative going through it. Well, a lot of it's kind of, in a sense, of subversive about authority. It's anti-authoritarian. 
uh, like even go back to things like Paradox, where you've got this kind of beer drinking, joint smoking, layabout. The kind of person would never be considered as worthy to be a superhero. It's taking that whole thing of just what, you know, that took that ridiculous idea of superheroes and subverted it. Yeah. So at the time, that was a very rad and different approach to superheroes. Now, you know, every superhero and his brother, you know, is like that. Um, People are looking for the everyman. Now, in Dream Gang, there's something specific I want to talk about with that. And because you mentioned earlier art influences uh, coming up in the 70s, you mentioned Warhol. And one influence that really struck out to me, and this may just be way off base, um, is kind of New York art in the late 70s, early 80s, um, specifically Basquiat. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm saying this is because you look at a Basquiat piece and there's um, words and ideas that pop up in an art piece. Uh, and in Dream Gang, I get that same idea where you kind of have this like underlying quasi-narrative of just these ideas and words and concepts popping up in yeah. the background in the dreamscape. And I'm wondering if this is like me being way off base or if there's something I'm seeing here. Um, no, but I'm as in, you know, we talked about in comic influences like Kirby and Ditko. Yeah. At the same time, I am as influenced and probably more influenced in terms of thinking and conceptually um, by Warhol, Duchamp, um, those kinds of people in, in how they were radically transforming the landscape of fine art. Um, so when I look at a comic, and I'm particularly one I'm doing myself, not a work-for-hire type of you know, Judge Dredd strip or something, um, I've got to think of certain things like, how do I want to convey a pair of people moving through the subconscious? Mm-hmm. So if I think of, well, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to take the device, because this is a comic book, I'm going to take the, the device of the, of the thought balloon, which represents thought, and we're in the realm of thought because we're in dreams. And inside the um, uh, thought balloon, I can drop random text, which would be to suggest random thoughts floating by, as well as images inside the balloons as well, which is thoughts are also visual. You know, obviously you get snippets of, of, of words in your mind uh, in the subconscious as well as uh, random thoughts visually as well, probably more visually really. Mm-hmm. So, so those, those, uh, that what you're referring to there is my, is my attempt to work out a visual representation of two characters who are in a dream, who are themselves dream characters. They're sitting, for example, in a... Um, a, ve- a, 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 a thought-constructed vehicle, which looks like a thought balloon. It's called a bubble car. Um, and they're moving through an environment where loads of different thoughts and images are floating by, meant to represent the cacophony of the subconscious. Yeah. yeah. So that is, by thinking about it, I decide, okay, and the key to it really was uh, the thought balloon. Take, digging that out of the dustbin and saying, okay, actually, this, this device is a fantastic device and has, been, and has been incorrectly thrown onto the scrap heap and now can actually be used again, but really probably more by artists than by... No, it's the, as, the... The big thing about the comics revolution, say, from Alan Moore onwards, you know, the British invasion and 
the rest of it was the the um, one of the one of the side effects of it was the the thought balloon was dumped and the panel became the method of representing interior yep. dialogue. So that was fine because there was a sense that the thought balloon was a bit unsophisticated and looked too comic-y. And as comets got rebranded into graphic novels, so the idea that these were a, 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 a tributary of literature, um, you saw the rise of the, uh, the writer over the artist. And it's now, we have basically writer bias all the time in comics. And, and um, one of the things for me as both a writer and an artist, but, you know, I think very much visually, was that I could take that device, the thought balloon, which had been discarded by writers, and put it to use as a visual artist, and say that this device, far from being redundant, actually is a, an amazing device. Um, for showing stuff, but visually, rather as much as in text. Um, I wish I had a better grasp on this, the um, sociology courses that I took in college, because there's something I want to talk. There's something in my head talking about the ego id and the anxiety within the characters and how that kind of dreamland, what that represents. But I don't know if my brain is there to process. Well that question completely <laughs> right i mean obviously i mean just for listeners who may not know what dream gang is it's a graphic novel set in the world of dreams um and um it's published by dark horse and it's going to be released in july the end of july um one of the devices in the story is um that a, a guy who a young man in in his mid-20s i'd say is leading a very grey and dismal, depressed life. And he has this very vivid dream. And in this dream, he meets dream people that travel through dreams at night. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not this is a concoction of his dream, that he has made all this up, because in a dream, we invent everything in a dream. Yeah. Um, or whether these people actually have an autonomous existence outside of his dream and are visiting his dream, and are, in fact, these dream voyagers. Uh, called the Dream Gang. So that's an ambivalence that I want to keep in the story. Um, now, what we find in the story is that the cause of his living this depressed grey life is hidden in a memory where in the, in the bigger story a dark force has planted a dream bomb into one of his memories and the Dream Gang have to go and try and disable it before it's it goes off. And the effect of the dream bomb on society will be that it will spread a meme through the sleeping population of the planet, which will disable the higher functions, the visionary functions, the spiritual function, and in a way, turn people into kind of consumerist cattle. Um, and we should clarify, when you say meme, um, some people may presume to think of the quippy web images, but you're talking like the idea of like ideas as a virus exactly correct yes in the that's how i'm uh, is, i didn't realize is it you is a meme used in a different way yeah like if you see like a web thing of like just any kind of reoccurring image um you know like star wars lightsaber kid um from the 90s and then that image reused in a whole bunch of different ways that's like a meme or like a cat hang in there thing that people reuse that it's called a meme um, 
Right, okay, well, I didn't realise it was used in that way. I'm just using it purely as an idea, as you say, as a, 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 an idea spread like a virus yeah. that replicates itself throughout the population a bit like a, uh, an annoying pop song chorus mm-hmm. or something. Something that goes into your head, you can't get it out of your head. In this case, the, me- the meme which spreads through the population has spliced into it different uh, effects so when the meme goes into your head, it has the effect then of cauterizing the higher functions. So I've taken the idea of genetic splicing and put it into mind splicing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the story of Dream Gang, this dream bomb must be disabled. Because uh, if it goes off, it's going to have a catastrophic effect uh, on, the, on, on the mental state of the entire population of the planet and induce a kind of living nightmare. Um, at the same time, Without giving, I'm not going to give away all of the story, but um, our individual young fellow who leads a suppressed life, in the dream where the bomb has been placed, we find the secret as to why he is le- leading this depressed life. And so the bomb has a metaphorical meaning in terms of what happened and why his own life is like the, the after effects of a bomb, like when you see those black and white photographs of Hiroshima, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's how... Uh, Often, I think, in dreams, um, if you have sort of emotional problems or issues or an emotional charge that isn't resolved, um, sometimes a dream will be created by the subconscious, i.e. you, um, to let you act, act out and experience a dream uh, play which somehow resolves it for you or sheds light on it for you so that perhaps on awakening you may feel differently about the issue that was bothering you. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what dreams do. They allow drama to unfold which acts out the uh, central emotional d- dynamic. Um, they don't always do that. I mean, um, I- I'm actually... There's a, there's a writer called James Hillman who's a psycho- psychologist and he's written some fantastic books on um, the dark side of psychotherapy where he says that um, dreams are a kind of wild space, a flux of the mind that we enter into where, in a way, the dream takes us often more than we take the dream. Mm-hmm. And he says that in taking a dream out of its realm into the waking world, you know, on the psychologist's couch, for example, and saying this dream means this and when you saw that dog it meant the blah and this means blah and then you neutralize the dream the strangeness and the mystery of it and you and you give it components of meaning and um, he said this in a way can trivialize the actual entry the entrance into the mysterium that dreams actually are for all of us is where we participate in a reality that is completely immersive it's probably the most it's as immersive a reality as the one we're in now when we're experiencing it at night but we do this peculiar thing where we wake up from it which is a very strange thing because we don't seem to wake up from this this particular reality so um uh those ideas are explored in dream gang as well and that's why i i i I built in a kind of degree of ambiguity about what I've been talking about, because I think that that's really, that dreams aren't ultimately explainable. Now, we spend a third of our lives asleep, and uh, about a third of that time, again, in dreams, in full REM. 
And um, it's an interesting world dreaming um, because, you know, you get, um, for example, an object may exhibit the characteristics of a different object, you know, like, um, you know, a chair could smell like a flower or something. I find that very interesting, the transposition of um, uh, difference in how we perceive things, you know, sort of synesthesia kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's been something that's fascinated me all my time. It's certainly something, a, a vivid dream, you know, in the mornings I might write it down and think, wow, that was interesting, or I've, even ideas have come from dreams, you know, good ones too. So this is a book you've really built up for for quite a while. Yeah, as I say, because of the film Inception, um, I had to radically rewrite from scratch the whole project. So it's quite different now to what it used to be. It was actually more like Inception. But I'd had this for sort of like 20 years. As I said, I, it nearly was a Vertigo series with Karen Berger, but uh, we didn't quite pull it together on the deal level. Um, so um, here it is finally. I mean, I wanted to get out of my system, I thought, um, and then I'll see what happens next. I mean, if it sells well enough, I'd quite like to do a sequel. If not, it'll be an interesting uh, piece of work along the way. Are you wanting to explore different facets and different concepts and ideas and kind of take it in different directions? Yeah, because I think the world I've built up now, as a as a established world with rules, leads itself to infinite stories. Um and, uh, you know, there's a couple of things I'd like to explore. Now, um, are you doing any events when the book comes out? Um, I'm, um, well, I'm doing a few. I'm going to be going to, uh, closer at hand, I'm going to be going to some uh, comic book shops and doing talks and, um, you know, signings, etc., that kind of stuff. And do you know any yet? Or? Well, Gotch in London, which is the premier comic shop in London, in England. I'll be doing a night there where I'll probably do a... I have a... I put together a, a slideshow talk on my comic work and my film work. And, you know, just as being a creative person, mm-hmm. surviving, being a, an artist for 35 years now. So, um, you know, and going through the ups and downs, the highs and the lows. I mean... I tell you what. I mean, it's great to do an interview, and and you know, and thank you for the intelligence of the questions, etc. <laughs> what's what, you know, what's frustrating is it's so hard to get people interested in your comments. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you just if you make uh, an off remark or something, and then that gets you more publicity than you've ever had in your life, you just think you just can't win. You know, if yeah. only I could get that amount of publicity for my uh, actual comic stuff, which I think has been very, very good over the years. I've been doing it since, you know, the days of Alan Moore and uh, Neil Gaiman, all the first, the first wave of the new comics. And uh, slightly overlooked, but very influential on people like Grant Morrison, Jamie Hewlett, all the types of people. And um, there's some good work in there as well. You know, there's some very good work from Rogan Gosh and Skin and Strange Days. Things like Reboot, completely groundbreaking CGI stuff. Mad Max Fury Road. And I think the Zorcer result was good. Fever had some great stuff in it. Um, um, and I hope this Dream Gang is uh, another good one. I think uh, it's, it's interesting. I think um, I was talking to someone earlier about kind of the influence I think you've had. And I think it's interesting, and I think most people wouldn't realize where you've had influence. Like, I think, uh, do you know what Fort Thunder is? 
No. Fort Thunder is this kind of arts comic scene out of Providence, Rhode Island in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, in Fort Thunder? Fort Thunder. Oh, okay. And uh, it, it's really interesting, um, oh, very avant-garde okay. comics as you can right. get. Sort of like raw of its era, is it? Yeah, very, like you can see Gary Panter's influence heavily on okay. them, but I feel like... Uh, the berserkness of your work uh, really fed into a lot of what they were doing. Um, and like modern guys like James Stokoe, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, his stuff. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it, one of the interesting is you kind of, uh, in that time in the 90s, um, seeing your work, like it really did come from left field compared to a lot of other stuff. Um, and so like for me, when I first came across your work, uh, in sh the shade covers, the issue of shade, um, and you, we, I really didn't see much of the UK stuff, and the Paradox stuff was far enough back that it wasn't really present to the comic stores at that right. point. Yeah, um, well, it, I had that strange thing of being sort of overlooked for many, you know, pretty much all the time, because, you know, at the, you know, the 80s are owned by Alan uh, and Neil Gaiman and, and Grant Morrison. and So one, it, it, Warren Ellis said... Um, that the Strange Day series is a bit like when the Beatles were at the height of Sgt. Pepper, the Velvet Underground came out with their first album. Mm -hmm. And it was almost the polar opposite, but completely overlooked and not seen until later on when the punk thing happened. And then it made sense, you know. It's almost like a sine wave, isn't it? Is that when something else is at its peak, it, almost its opposite is starting to form yeah. and gradually takes, just like, for example, we've seen with the counterculture, um, you know, in the 60s has now become the mainstream culture now. Environmentalism, healthy eating, organics, uh, equal rights for everybody, um, you know, all that sort of stuff, which was once fringe, has now become default, the default position, really. And I think, like, even now, as we've been talking about comics and the reliance on things being um, movie-ready uh, in mainstream comics, there's the, the stuff that I'm more interested in is the kind of post-Fort Thunder stuff where there's folks making really weird artistic comics that don't even focus on characters, um, mm. that take up spaces. Like this one guy, uh, Matt Brinkman, did this comic called Mult Multiverse, and you're just kind of going through this cavernous world. Right. And you, you're not dependent on anything, and a lot well, of rules are tossed out the door. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. And um, at my, in my art college days, I, I was doing very abstract comic work through collaging and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was always interested in somehow um, occupying a space in comics that in the way that, say, David Bowie did in music or, say, the extreme, you know, John Lennon within the context of the Beatles was able to put out some very far-out stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're still accessible and you're not just in a, a real fringe, underground, nobody looks at it kind of stuff, except for a few aficionados. I'd, I, I'd, I've sort of been there, and I don't want to ever just stay in over that far out. Mm -hmm. I'd rather, like something like Dream Gang, I feel like I'm exploring some interesting ideas here, and it's slightly left of mainstream, you know. I, and so what, that's where I place myself, is if you like my own heroes, people like David Bowie. Uh, would be where I would place myself in terms of he was slightly to the left of the mainstream but and and added to it and 
slightly kept one step away from it. You know, in yeah. his prime, in his prime period. One year, uh, doing both uh, producing a Mott the Hoople album and at the same time doing an album that's half just soundscape pieces. Well, exactly, and producing, you know, Transformer by Lou Reed. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and also Brian Eno's been a big influence in that kind of way as well. He steps into the mainstream and he'll produce, uh, you know, you know, his work on Roxy Music is superb and he'll produce bands like, you know, U2 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then he'll then put out albums of, and create his own completely new genre of ambient music. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of, I've always had a musical analogy in my work more than a film analogy to my stuff. You know, uh, I've always seen words and pictures as lyrics and music rather than script and cinematography, which is 99% of comics. It's fair enough. But uh, I think if you think in a different analogy, it allows you to do different things. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think like it's really important to never um, get stuck on uh, comics being like a one-discipline thing, a visual discipline, because it, it's... Uh, it, you kind of lose that organic sense of art and how things are mutable and uh, will go across different places. And so, like, the guys who I talked earlier about for Thunder, they also do noise music. In fact, the one of the main guys, Brian Chippendale, is more famous for his band than for his comics. His band does extremely well. Um, right. And that's that kind of ability to, to transcend different things. Uh, Gary Panter also very big in music stuff too so it's you know i like that yeah um i do you know i mean i i get that kind of the raw thing where it was very tied into the new york art scene um um yeah i mean i suppose uh you know people like alan moore and um grant morrison still will play around with the narrative form and stuff. So I feel that they, you know, there are a couple of, I mean, less so uh, Grant Morrison, but Alan Moore, I feel, has stayed, you know, has kept his integrity by um, keeping out of the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, Brendan. People can check out his new book, The Dream Gang from Dark Horse. It'll be out in July. (laughs) 